Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Australia's Prince of Pop is born. Football, meat pies, kangaroos and hold on a minute. Is the newly launched General Motors Holden really the first Australian made car? Donna the Demon Fire Eater exposed as a dude deserter. Lord and Lady Byron in a West Australian paddock with a broken down tractor. God speaks from on high while a record setter rises from the grave. Meanwhile, in men's fashion, we get some shocking news off our chest. All that and more is coming up. I'm Mick Luby. I'm Michael Adams. This is the Wayback Week, and we're about to take a deep dive into stories from the first week of July 1949. Some made history, but a whole lot more deserve to. So, Mick, this week, the coal strike. Hmm. Did you know about this before you started flicking through ye olde newspapers? I really didn't. I, I, I feel like our history teachers let us down on this one. I, it, it's massive. Every single newspaper, every front page in every city for every day this week is coal strike. Yeah, and you don't often get events where they hit home quite literally like this. You can see why people were pissed off. For instance, in Sydney... You could only use the gas between 6.30am and 8am in the morning and then from 5.30 till 7 at night. Um, and you could only use you know, electricity in similarly limited hours. So people couldn't cook, they couldn't wash. Mm. Like tens of thousands, possibly even hundreds of thousands of people had been uh, temporarily laid off as businesses shut down. So it was, without overselling it, it was kind of a crisis. Yeah, and this is the middle of winter and a particularly bad winter. It was the worst in 15 years in terms of uh, cold and rain. People were uh, chopping down trees, burning fence palings. There was a uh, a series of cartoons in which... uh, Hobos were depicted as being really angry because all the methylated spirits was gone because housewives were using it to light cooking fires. <laughs> yeah, there's a cartoon I was looking at here where there's a fairly put-upon kind of hubby being sent off by the missus and she's got a long shopping list of things like candles and uh, she's saying to him, after you register for unemployment relief, dear, would you pick up these things from the grocer and before you come back to clean the kerosene stove, would you find time to go to the beach for some driftwood? This is only the second week. I mean, this will go on until mid-August? Yeah, I think it was about six, seven weeks all up. So Ben Chifley, the ALP Prime Minister, who himself was a former striker in, uh, I think, around about 1917. He'd been quite an outspoken unionist. Mm. He also came from the federal seat of Macquarie, which is where I live, which is uh, in the Blue Mountains, which is a big area for coal mining because you know, Lithgow is just down the hill. That's right. Yep. So he was, um, despite being 
a Labor Prime Minister had drawn a line in the sand and said that the unions, the coal mining unions were filled with communists. He wasn't going to back down. They were going to have to go back to work or else. Of course, you've got the opposition leader, Robert Menzies, who's saying that's not going far enough. We need to outlaw the Communist Party and break this strike by any means necessary. And like every day in this in this week, there's full page ads, several full page ads in every newspaper from Chifley saying, you know, the miners are being influenced by communists. And then there's big ads from Menzies saying Chifley's not going far enough. Yeah. And you sort of think, wow, he's he's playing right into Menzies' hands, really. He's doing what a liberal PM might be doing, but he can't he can't win in a lot of ways. Chifley actually had enough balls to come to Katoomba to his home electorate seat to confront mm. miners and in Katoomba they were all shouting at him one of the blokes who was shouting at him his name was Len Lefty what a great name for a communist oh that's fantastic <laughs> meanwhile he had Chifley had that bizarre setup of the Ross brothers so he had Lloyd Ross as his spin doctor and then Lloyd's younger brother was Edgar Ross who was pretty much the sort of unofficial leader of the Communist Party at the same time. Amazing. Yeah. Did anyone walk into Parliament at this time with a lump of coal in their hand? Mm-hmm. They didn't did need they? to, did they? No, they, they didn't, didn't need, need to, to sh- resort to those kind of cheap shot shenanigans. Ben Chifley brought in um, soldiers to load coal in the mining areas and there was real fears that there was going to be armed violence. As it Mm. turned out, the strikers stood aside and eventually everything went back to work. Uh, But ironically for Chifley, it didn't work and at the end of the year he lost to Menzies and then the Liberals were in power until 1972. Yeah. So for 23 years after this, Labor was in the wilderness. Yeah, you can't help thinking Pig Iron Bob would have just been thinking quietly, thank you very much, Chiff. You, You beauty, thank you commies. Yeah. I know this week as one of his biggest fans, you would like to extend a happy 70th birthday uh, message to... No? No? Mm, mm, Bueller? No. Bueller? To Johnny Farnham? <laughs> Come on. Hang on, Johnny. Uh, John, sorry. Yes. So are you a big fan of John Farnham's works? I'm donning the dryer bone as we speak. Okay. Hang on, just let me put on the acid wash jeans. Sort my mullet. <laughs> oh, come on. So this week on the 1st of July, 1949, mm. John Farnham was born in Dagenham in the UK, home also of uh, Peter Cook. All right. And Depeche Mode member Martin Gore. Right. And yes. Actor, actor, producer, screenwriter Nick Frost, and Sandy Shaw, who in uh, the 1960s won the Eurovision Song Contest with Puppet on a String. So oh. John came from a, a hotbed of pop creativity. He uh, got his start in December 1967 with Sadie the Cleaning Lady, mm-hmm. a truly dreadful song, but inexplicably <laughs> hugely popular. To promote it, he actually took a cleaning lady or a woman dressed as a cleaning lady with him when he visited radio stations. But as the press noted, he didn't need to worry about that because he himself was soon cleaning up on the pop charts. Oh, nice, nice. Mm. And he's always been such a nice guy, our John as well, well, hasn't he? Even then, he said, look, you know, I've taken a two-year break from my apprenticeship as a plumber. And I hope this works out, but if it doesn't, I've got something to fall back on. Mm. And he's kind of maintained that like lack of 
pretentiousness throughout his whole career, which you've kind of got to admire to some extent. But he's looked after his pipes. <laughs> You're the voice, of course, being the huge hit mm. uh, that really put him back on the map in 1986 because he had actually, his career was on the skids. He, he was broke. He was living in a rented house. Considering going um, back to plumbing. Considering going back to plumbing, he was getting his crack ready. Um, <laughs> he had some bad business investments, so he really was on the bones of his ass. And this was his last chance mm. with the the album Whispering Jack, which Glenn Wheatley actually oh, Glenn mortgaged Wheatley. his house yes. to, to pay for the album. They got this song, You're the Voice, and it had been written by Andy Quanta, who was the Ice House keyboardist, right. Maggie Ryder, who was a backup singer for Queen and the Eurythmics, Keith Reed, who was the lead singer and lyricist for Procol Harum, who wrote and sang A Whiter Shade of Pale, and Chris Thompson, who was the lead singer of Manfred Mann, who gave us Blinded by the Light. So these four people came together, wrote this song. Decent. John Farnham said, yep, I'll take it. That propelled Whispering Jack to becoming the biggest selling album produced by an Australian in Australia of all time. To this day. To this day, 1.68 million copies sold, 24 times platinum. It was on the charts in the number one spot for 25 weeks. Um, it, it's got all the voice. <laughs> it's got impressive <laughs> pedigree. I, I have, wasn't aware of its pedigree. No, neither was I until I did a bit of bit of reading. But the other thing, which was, uh, I guess, to, to people who don't love John Farnham the way you and I do, we dodged a bullet because the song he turned down for the album mm. was "We Built This City." No way way so he said no to that Who, uh, it of course went on to be recorded by starship mm. was a huge hit but in august 2016 gq did declare that we built this city was the worst song ever released um, i'm guessing they hadn't heard baha men's who let the dogs out or agadoo's black lace because they are objectively worse yeah i'd put them up there and the other thing that I found amazing is that 1.68 million Australians bought copies of Whispering Jack. Did they turn their stereos up full bore right at the very start before pressure down? Because you can hear whispering. Have you heard the whispering? I, I tried to hear the whispering and, and I thought maybe you were just um, imagining things and, and hearing you. voices. No. It says, there is no restriction on subject or language. No way. There is no restriction on subject or language. And how that came about was while they were recording it, being a bunch of Aussie buffoons, they were calling those 0055 numbers. You remember those porno numbers in the 80s? Oh, of course you could not. you call up and have phone sex? No, I was busy practicing violin and, you know, all of that. <laughs> One of the recording crew, whether it was Farnham or Wheatley, I don't know who, asked, you know, is there anything we can't say or do mm. over the phone? And she said... There is no restriction on subject or language. And they thought that was so funny and so lovely. They put it on the album. <laughs> lovely. Take a listen. It's there. Now, another thing happening this week, which was huge, not just for the rev heads, but Australians in general, was our first car, which, of course, was the Holden. It seems like all Australians are hanging out to go for a hoon in a Holden, which actually began production in late 1948. But by mid-1949, the demand was so great that people were just waiting and waiting and the list was getting longer and longer and they weren't able to keep up. The Holden 48215, which for obvious reasons was soon nicknamed the FX, it was, um, it was all the rage, but not 
many people had actually set eyes on it. It um, was rare as hen's teeth, basically, and the coal strike hadn't helped. So the coal strike, when that hit, uh, production slowed uh, and the list just grew. So people were just sort of, they'd ordered, those who could afford it, had ordered their brand new Holden, but uh, they weren't turning up. Also this week, it was being pointed out in the Kalgoorlie Minor, of all things, that this wasn't anything like Australia's first car. We had, we had produced steam cars in the 1890s, have we not? Yes, yes, and that's what um, that's what the Kalgoorlie miner was pointing out. In fact, it says grandfather may have driven any one of a number of Australian cars for the first took the road more than fifty years ago when motoring was at a tender age in every country. Pioneer of them all was the steamer, as you say. The steamer was produced in 1896 by Herbert Thompson, an engineer of Armidale, Victoria, and his cousin Edward Holmes. At the Royal Melbourne Show, it amazed the crowds with its evolutions in the ring, and among the many notable passengers it carried was the Governor Lord Brassey, an adventurous man who would try anything once. They sent it up to Sydney, and then encouraged by the way the car performed on a short drive over rough roads, and in places no roads at all, they decided to drive back to Melbourne to make the first interstate trip by car. This feat made a sensation. Australia caught its breath in amazement, according to the report by one Melbourne newspaper. The time was 56 hours and 36 minutes, with an average speed of 8.5 miles an hour, despite many long stops, during which the car was explained to enthusiastic crowds. <laughs> Man, yeah, that would amazing. be annoying. No, we've got to stop again. Man, yeah, 56 well, hours. Can you imagine the state of the roads, though? Because they would have been just roads that had been used by carriages until that point. Yeah, and horses. absolutely. And so these were traffic. pretty rugged. It was a pretty rugged vehicle. Fuel consumption was 42 gallons of kerosene. They were, they were quite dangerous, of course. So there's some nice detail in the story about how these early steamers would be designed and they'd have these great boilers stuck on top of them. Mm. And, of course, the police would have a look at them and say, no, 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 it's not safe enough. So they'd have a lot of trouble being allowed to drive them on the roads. There was another um, maker of an early car, another steamer, by a South Australian implement maker, David Shearer of Manham. His steam car was built in 1897 and looked rather like a dog cart with a miniature donkey engine boiler as passenger, in, in quote marks. So you're sitting next to this boiler. Yes, yeah, good exactly. Good winter, not so, so good in summer. True, yeah, and that uh, that did struggle to to be made legal. The little car performed well, but the vertical boiler was more in the in line with steam coaches. It'd be so it um, quite handy if you were smoking your pipe as well. I guess you could sort of just you know put your pipe into the fire there of the boiler and puff away as you tootled along at eight point five miles an hour. In this week in nineteen forty nine, God was under threat, and when what? I said. God, I mean Father Divine. Father Divine was a African-American cult leader who didn't say he was a messenger of God. He mm. said he was God. And this guy had been on, a, on his holy roll for decades by this point. So Time magazine at one point claimed he had two million followers around the world, which has subsequently been disputed. But he did have tens of thousands of followers and he had followers in Australia and a couple of hundred in Sydney and this week in July 1949 they were defending him because he was under threat from a former uh, follower called John Hunt who'd also been known as John the Revelator although in his mm. article in uh, the Sydney Sun they got it wrong and called him John the Elevator 
<laughs> trying to give him a he's, bit of a lift. He's had his ups and downs. <laughs> John the Revelator in the early 30s had caused a big, big controversy because while he was a follower of Father Divine, he'd abducted an heiress. Um, she was 17 years old. He'd taken her across the uh, state border from her Colorado home to Beverly Hills for immoral purposes. There he seduced her by brainwashing her into thinking she was the reincarnation of the Virgin Mary, which kind of seems oh, a little yeah. bit at, at odds there. But anyway, it seemed to work. Yeah. He went to court. It was a big scandal. He eventually, I think he did, did some time, but he was welcomed back into the fold of Father Divine. But by this week in 1949, John Hunt, a.k.a. John the Revelator, had split off again and um, was a- accusing father divine of all sorts of improprieties uh, regarding women and excess including having a limousine which this john hunt had paid for which cost back then twelve thousand five hundred pounds it was a 265 horsepower throne car it had star-shaped windows had a massive throne in the back for him to sit in um So Father Divine also had these hotels all over the place in in the United States, and he had one in Sydney as well, and he called them Heavens. And this is where his his followers, who called themselves Archangels, hung out. So this week, the Sydney Sun went to one of these Heavens and interviewed various adherents about Father Divine and whether he was going to weather this crisis. And they were all like, yep, for sure he will. Uh, Mrs. Neil Ramsey, who was uh, in the Sydney heaven, said, Father Divine is God, but you wouldn't understand that. She said in 1947, two years earlier, she'd been to the US to Father Divine's wedding to Mother Divine, who is, quote, the nearest thing to a flower I have ever seen. Another one of these angels, described as a grey-haired matronly angel, said that Father Divine was fulfilling everything in the Bible. So yeah, these people were pretty staunch, and um, they, <laughs> yeah, they were. But Father Divine's uh, reputation had really um, been bolstered in the 1930s. He had all of these feasts in New York State, where up to 3,000 people came along to pig out and praise him. He went on trial for disturbing the peace with one of these parties. He was found guilty by the jury, but they asked the judge for leniency. So the judge said no go and imposed the uh, harshest penalty. A few days later, the judge died of a heart attack. And oh. Father Divine was reported to have said, I hated to do it. <laughs> uh, nice, nice. He actually, Subtle. He apparently actually said that he hadn't wanted Smith to die, but had hoped mm. that he would be able to touch the man's heart, which he did, Ooh. I guess. So yeah, uh, anyway, yeah. Father did Divine... Did more than touch it by the sounds of it. Mm. Father Divine lives on um, in a fashion in the song Accentuate the Positive, which Johnny Mercer wrote after attending one of his sermons in which Father Divine said those very words. You've got to accentuate the positive and eliminate the negative. So, Oh, oh well, yeah. that, that is nice. I mean, it's, it's a good nice. line. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 
In equally quirky American religious news, this week saw the debut of the Sky Preacher. This was a chap named Kurt Wetzel, who in Pennsylvania took to the air in his plane, which he'd fitted out with microphones and loudspeakers to broadcast the message of God from the clouds. So he'd just fly around (laughs) wherever he spotted a bunch of people, I don't know, working in a paddock, having a picnic, playing football. He'd kind of just swoop down and then cut the engine, glide around and broadcast his uh, godly message to them. So he was speaking God's message from the clouds. I've never been one to push you know, for surface-to-air missiles, but <laughs> that would be one case in which, yeah, I, I think I'd, yeah, I'd be tempted. Yeah, that would be, that'd be horrible. It would be, wouldn't it? You wouldn't think it would have lasted very long. No. And, but you'd uh, be I'm, wrong. I'm, well, did he get shot down? Did <laughs> he, he didn't get shot down. In the Australian newspapers this week, they reported that Kurt Wetzel, sky preacher, had made his debut in the Great Blue Yonder. But then in an article in 1962, Kurt Wetzel was reported to be about to preach again, minus his plane, because he'd crashed. Oh, so he was just going to, what? He was going to just wing walk it. around. He's going to fly. <laughs> fly by the seat himself. of his pants. Yeah. That's right. But the most recent report I found was from 1983. And wow. this was from the Post Star in Glens Falls, New York, flying reverend to speak. So by this stage, he'd been flying, he got his plane back, obviously, and he'd been flying and preaching for 35 years. Annoying people from the air for 35 years. That's one way of looking at it, Mick. Another way of looking at it is saving souls from on high. <laughs> you heathen. That's I can't see myself converting to that. No. What about Father Divine? Yeah, he, well, he just sounds scary. I mean, I, I wouldn't want to cross him. No. Considering his powers. I know. I feel Oof. feel a bit frightened even talking about him now. Oh, absolutely. And as all this was happening, here you go with the Who Am I, Michael? I was doing time in juvenile prison for stealing a car. As a toddler, I was sent to live with my aunt who ran a brothel. From there, I worked shining shoes outside the local radio station. In jail, I was nicknamed Music Box and formed a band decked out with handmade instruments. My 8 to 16 year sentence was reduced to 3 after I was sponsored by the family of Bobby Bird, an aspiring piano player. And Bobby Bird and others, with this guy, formed the famous Flames. Our first proper recording was Please, Please, Please in 1956. I'm going to say Johnny Cash as a total guess, just because of the prison thing, but I think I'm wrong on that one. So who was Mm, it? He wasn't white. Within 10 Chuck, years... Chuck Berry? No. Within no. 10 years, the hardest working man in music with a roadshow said to be the most successful in history. Mm, no, drawing a blank. Get on up. Ah. Oh, James wow. Brown. Nice. Yes. Yeah. So he was in prison at this... This week in 1949, James Brown was doing time. Yeah, exactly. Aged, aged 16 for, for stealing a car... I, Accounts vary. Maybe it was possibly um, armed theft, but... Um, I think it was probably gee. a charge of being a sex machine. Oh, well, there was that. And a music box. But it's incredible that 15 years after this, he's, he's out of prison and he's touring the world in his own Learjet with the words out of sight on the side of it. Now, would you, be, would you be okay with James Brown flying over you, singing at you from the sky? See, I, absolutely. That's fine. That's fine. 
Is that is that wrong of me? Am no, I being I am I I being inconsistent in my overhead air terrorism? I think I'd prefer that as well. So that same year when he's been getting around in his Learjet, James Brown also pretty much spoke to the masses, to the to young black Americans specifically, after the assassination of Martin Luther King and pretty much literally said, cool it, don't terrorise, organise, don't burn, give kids a chance to learn and pretty much saying the real answer to race problems in, the, in this country is education and be ready and be qualified and that's black power is what he was saying. It was a, lot, it was a rare live concert that was televised and he wrote in his memoir years later, Others may have followed in my wake, but I was the one who turned racist minstrelsy into black soul and by doing so became a cultural force. Now we're crossing to Western Australia for something huge this week. Uh, We've all heard of Lord Byron, I'm guessing. The poet Lord Byron, but what about Lord Byron the Aussie farmer? Mm, I'm not familiar with his poetical works. Mm, I don't think he would be either. W.A. Farmer, now a British peer. That was the big headline this week. Mr. Rupert Byron, a dinner-up farmer, who, a London message said yesterday, has become the 11th Lord Byron. And this is amazing because it's pretty much the revelation that we had an heir to the Byron peerage who was pretty much riding a tractor out on a uh, on a remote <laughs> farm in WA. Rupert Byron, when he was told this, he thought, oh, I, I knew this was going to happen eventually, but I'd rather it didn't, and I don't really want to be the next Lord Byron. So he didn't embrace it. He didn't get out his quill pen, start penning romantic poetry and smoking opium while getting bawdy with the ladies and, and gentlemen of English society. He didn't seem to have a lot in common with his great-great-grandfather, I think it was. Did he go and no. live in a castle? No, he, he, he turned it all down. In fact, when the, when the reporter turns up from the West Australian with, with the news, he comes across as a little bit annoyed. The reporter apparently walks in and says <laughs> to the missus, to Pauline, the new Lady Byron, is the 11th Lord Byron in? Who? Says the new Lady Byron, <laughs> wonderingly. Oh, he's still out in the paddock bringing in the cattle. And then when he troops out there, the reporter, to find the new Lord Byron, he pretty much says to him, ah, geez, if I'd known you were coming all the way from Perth, I would have got you to bring this part for my tractor because my tractor's broken down. <laughs> I think and the now other Lord Byron poem about that, didn't he? <laughs> An ode to my tractor part. An ode to my tractor part. He certainly wrote about many parts, not tractors. Because, yeah, the, the Lord Byron poet was a little more of your pants man than your uh, agriculturalist. He was about planting it in a different fashion. Yeah, that's right. And the way this Rupert Byron, the farmer, came to be the next Lord Byron was that the 10th Lord Byron, the Reverend Frederick Ernest Charles Byron, had died at Thrumpton Hall, Derbyshire, at the age of 88. I don't no think tr- there's a more British sentence possible, is there? <laughs> Possibly not. <laughs> and he left no children... So over to Western Australia, they had to track down Rupert Byron. Let's call him Rup, mm. Lord Rup. What did he do? He had the title. He pretty much said, I refuse it. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to go over there. I'm just going to continue with my life. 
and it got handed on. I think we're up to the 13th Lord huh. Byron now. Yeah, this piece ends with, This morning it will again be business as usual for the Byrons at dinner up. Providing the tractor is willing, the new Lord will be, in his own words, flat out getting the crops in. And his wife still has the ironing to do. I wonder if they had any regrets. A couple of years later there's a drought and Pauline, was it Pauline? Yes. She's like, I bloody told you you should have taken that lordship. Yeah, we could have done with that now. Yeah. Mm. This week, a chap named Raymond Emmett rose from the grave. He wasn't dead. He'd just been down there for 45 days trying to set a new record in a specially built coffin. (sighs) I guess this is part of that era when people sat top flagpoles and engaged in dancing competitions or all stood around with a, their hands on a car to see who could you know remain upright the longest yeah so roller skates down, it always involved roller skates and roller skates yeah. that's yep. right so this guy Raymond Emmett uh, went into his grave for 45 days and um, he was a 40 year old unemployed war veteran so I guess he didn't have much else on but he was determined to win the buried alive championship and set this record <laughs> This was actually in Zanesville, Ohio. So he actually had been buried, like, you know, it had all been filled in on top of him, except for a shaft where people could look down on him. So he said uh, after 45 days, he was sick of being looked at, which is, you know, fair enough, because thousands of people had come to have a peek at him to look down the shaft and look at his face. So he spent his time down there eating ordinary meals, reportedly drank gallons of red wine, so he was tanked. Hang on, he wasn't. So he wasn't lying down in his coffin. There's a photo of him in which he appears to be sort of sitting upright, but the way that they described it also seems that he was pretty cramped. Right, but he was so able he, to drink wine and and yeah, eat. Eat, and he gave up. Uh, not only because he was sick of people looking at him, mm. but also because he had grown a whopping beard, which was itching the hell out of him. Oh, that would be annoying. He didn't get no. a little curtain. He could have had a little sort of privacy curtain to, to draw across. You'd hope so. I don't know how he went to the toilet. Oh, that's not been. mentioned, of course. Right. Must have been. Well, this was 1949. They didn't go into such details. Now it had now an on- would be the first thing you'd ask. It didn't have an ensuite. It didn't have an ensuite. So I'm assuming he just dug an extra hole in his grave and... Mm. Whoa. Must have been a bit smelly. But 45 days down there. Yeah. Oh. These days it'd be easy. You just put on the Netflix and... Yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah. Coasted him. You probably wouldn't want to come out. It'd be like when you get on a plane, it's like, oh, no one can contact me for 24 hours. <laughs> These days it would be being promoted by uh, hipsters as a, you know, miniature house. Yes, Min- and it'd be very hard living. to find. You'd be down a yeah. laneway somewhere. You, pro- you probably wouldn't get a custom-made grave in Sydney for less than a mil, these <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And did he did he win? What did he win for this? He he just won the prestige, I believe. Right. right. Being the record holder. Yeah. He got he got a brand new apartment that was six <laughs> six feet long and three feet wide. <laughs> six feet under. <laughs> six feet under. In fashion this week, some mm. some shocking news. The headline: He men's chests hard on shirts. Now, this is a problem you'd be familiar with, Michael. <laughs> it's very difficult to say that one. The gap between hard and, and on that you've got to be careful Yes, with. very good. The uh, the problem here being, as you would know, that if, you, mm. if you're if you a manly macho type with uh, with a lot of hair on your chest... A bushel. 
a bushel, you will you will be just tearing literally through your shirts. Mm. It's in from uh, from Melbourne. It's been reported that a number of shirts a man wears out in a year depends a lot on the amount of hair he has on his chest. <laughs> Who actually authored that report? Uh, it, it have goes, you ever have you ever encountered that as a problem wearing uh, out a shirt through your bristles? I've gone through three just in this podcast. <laughs> we do take a long time to record, so that's very. <laughs> Mr. G. King, manager of the shirt department at a leading Melbourne store, said that hairy chests had a barbed wire effect on quality shirts. <laughs> Mr. King was commenting on a cable this week which reported that a British committee was trying to find out the lifespan of a man's shirt. Men with hairy chests don't get as much wear out of shirts as an average man, Mr. King said. I find that most men have about six shirts, changing them every other day. The average man gets 18 months wear out of each shirt. I'm going to go and inspect my wardrobe now to see just if, they're, if they are actually getting a little bit threadbare in the chest hair area. Mm. Yeah, and you're hoping they are? It hasn't been a problem. Well, they go on to uh, talk to the managing director of Palaco, which is a great name in Melbourne history and skylines because it's the uh, famous mm. shirt company that loomed over Richmond. The managing director of Palaco said the Commonwealth yearbook showed that the average Australian man and boy wore out five shirts each every two years. I don't think I've ever discarded a shirt because I've worn it out in that way. In other news involving men and fashion, this was the week when uh, an American army deserter was found after four years in the UK posing as a female dance hall entertainer named Donna the Demon Fire Eater. So this guy, Delbert Eugene Hill, before the war, had been working in a circus in America. He'd been a fire eater. He'd done some female impersonation shows. When he was drafted into the army, he was put into the entertainment corps and he did female impersonation, drag acts to entertain Mm. the troops during the war. And then right at the end of the war, in 1945, um, he was demoted and he was given the job to clean latrines. As some sort of punishment. He was so pissed off. He went on a three-day drinking bender and then when he kind of sobered up, went, oh, I can't go back now. I'm going to be in big trouble. So he hid in plain view as Donna, the UK's only female fire eater, a.k.a. Donna, the demon fire eater and for the next four years he worked vaudeville wearing long hair lipstick rouge nylon stockings lacquered fingernails and toured all over the country um and then he actually met a woman named betty and uh at first they were just gal pals Mm. and then he trusted and loved betty enough to reveal his true self to her and she went i hope she wasn't disappointed no, she actually wasn't. She she loved him. Right, and right. And they went into this relationship. But other than her, no one knew. He lived his entire life outside of their apartment as a woman. Yeah. Then he went on tour and, uh-oh, he met another woman who was accepting of him. Oh. So Betty, in a fit of jealousy, dobbed him in. He was arrested, oh. exposed, court-martialed and got two years. Oh, that was the end of Don of the Demon Fire Eater. Fair to say he was playing with fire. I reckon we've got time for one more story. This week in Germany, a convicted serial killer 
hmm. named Rudolf Pleel asked if he could have a job as an executioner. <laughs> he was... <laughs> He had a CV that proved he could do it. He had uh, been convicted of killing 10 people. His nickname was Der Totmarker, which is literally the dead maker. So he asked authorities, hey, seeing as I'm in jail and you're executing people, Mm. mind if I do it? Mm. Unsurprisingly, they said no. This chap, Rudolf Pleel, the dead maker, claimed he'd killed 25 people and then he'd killed an extra one so he could beat the record of previous record-holding German serial killer, Fritz Harman, and be able to call himself the greatest murderer of all. Right. Rudolf's cause probably wasn't helped when he called his memoir Mein Kampf. Oh, right, yeah, which, yeah, sounds a bit familiar. Yeah, and I'm going to say the original author of Mein Kampf might have been able to claim that he'd killed more people than anybody else. My struggle. I think in Rudolf's case, it translates to I'm a plagiarist. All right, that's all the time we have this week. Join us next time on the Wayback Week when we're going to take a time trip to the second week of July 1979. And until then, remember, as Lord Byron, the poet, not the tractor driver, said, the good old times, all times when old, are good. <laughs>